welcome back to more of a comment than a question. I am one of your hosts, Paul Connor, and as always, I'm joined by my friend, colleague, scientist, and national championship game loser, Rachel Hartman. <laughs> Rachel, how are you doing? How, I commiserations wow. on okay. University of North Carolina's <laughs> humiliating defeat in the national championship Ooh. game. How does it feel to be such a big loser? Have you gotten over it? <laughs> Um, um okay so first of all we beat duke so that's what matters and so um i don't i don't even care about the national championship i actually didn't and don't really care about basketball at all but i did watch the game against duke just the last bit of it with friends and i was like surprisingly into it i was like at the edge of my seat and they kept you know because it was like very close at, towards the end and uh, I was just like, yeah, rooting for UNC. And it just, it felt weird. I was like, <laughs> why do I, get I care it. I get it. <laughs> well, yeah, this is actually interesting to me because the this country, the United States of America, it's the only place you can go in the world where anybody gives a shit about college sports. And <laughs> I, I actually find it kind of cool. Like it's, it is something kind of actually interesting and unique about us culture and um yeah i want to actually ask our guest about this because i know that uh she used to be a cheerleader but like maybe maybe later in the pod but maybe we should introduce her first sounds good oh no i must be the only cheerleader (laughs) (laughs) so our guest today is a uh the director of the adversarial collaboration project and a visiting scholar at the university of pennsylvania uh, Corey Clark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's very, I feel like this is going well already. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very nice. Very nice to have you here. We've never met, um, but I've known actually our first ever podcast was about, about you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, now so I'm going to have to go listen to it. Don't, no. <laughs> don't. Which one was that one? I don't remember. It was actually called. <laughs> it was called Corey Gate. Corey Gate. Wow. Yeah. 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 How didn't so, I hear about this? Probably because there were enough other things happening in my life at the moment. <laughs> guess we had sufficiently few listeners, uh, and I suspect a lot of things were happening in your life, uh, namely Corey Gate at the time. But um, no, like I uh, Google that. Is that a thing? <laughs> I. No, and I think even before that, I was aware of you from Twitter as mm-hmm. just being a, a just an incredibly unusual figure in social psychology, <laughs> in terms of the things you study and the things that the things that you think about. But just in case any of our guests aren't aware of you and sort of what you do and and what you like to think about and study, maybe um, yeah, how do how do you describe it to? Um, um people yeah that's a good question i don't think anyone's ever asked me that before um i think probably uh i think i started off as a pretty normal social psychologist um and only over time have i i guess started to drift into no man's land uh uh not no man's land but um I, I guess I maybe have a little bit of a reputation now for being, I don't know if you'd want to call me heterodox or, you know, uh, a person who, I guess, 
maybe ruffles the feathers of some of my peers <laughs> from time to time, um, mainly because I studied political bias. And I think my first my first transgression against the field was being a co-author on um, a meta-analysis where we found that liberals and conservatives were equally politically biased. That was the first time I really pissed anyone off. <laughs> um, people didn't like that. And then since then, I've also started to explore liberal bias and um, looking at, I mean, some of my work has found that conservatives will treat different genders and different races more similarly, whereas liberals have like a reverse bias where they treat women better than men and black people better than white people. Um, and they don't like to hear that either. <laughs> Haven't managed to publish any of that work, but I've been trying. <laughs> it's been uh, reviewed at like 12 journals. Um, what, really? Oh, yeah, I have two papers that look at like liberal bias and treatment of information that portrays uh, like it looks at race or gender. Uh, two papers on that, one on censorship and one on just like scientific evaluations. And both of them I've submitted like to every single journal under the sun and they've just been rejected over and over, and over again. Are they being like desk rejected or are you getting reviews? Um, both, sometimes desk rejected, sometimes reviews. We actually had one. Uh, this was a couple years back uh, where we submitted, this was the equalitarianism paper that looks at liberal bias and the, it was death rejected. And the editor said, he's not persuaded it's a bias. Um, and we did everything we could in the paper to show it uh, and, you know, use the standard methods and then try to even go above and beyond that. Um, and we emailed him and said, okay, well, what would convince you Tell us any test we can run and we'll run it. Uh, and he said, there's nothing you could do to convince me it's a bias. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Maybe wow. you shouldn't be an editor at a scientific That's... journal. Um, wow. Anyway, it's been a struggle. <laughs> Not to say these, these papers are perfect. They certainly aren't. Um, yeah, no, 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 however, I, I've I, published lower quality work at the same places. So I'm a little suspicious and, and people don't like that. So give either. us, <laughs> give us a, 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 I wasn't expecting you to talk about this, but I'm now really interested. Give us sort of a rundown, at least of some of the studies in the paper and, and how you sort of um, are demonstrating these effects and, 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 and sort of what the editors slash reviewers are, are saying to, to, cause 12 is, and I'm, I'm so surprised because you publish a lot or like you, it's not like you struggle to publish, like you. I struggle to publish certain things. <laughs> yeah. So what, yeah, just, can you talk us through a couple of these studies of these? Yeah. So in the qualitarianism paper, we look at, um, it's so traditionally in bias research, really any kind of bias, whether you're looking at political bias or whether you're looking at race bias or gender bias, what you tend to do or what scientists tend to do is present people with equal pieces of information, like nearly identical pieces of information, and then manipulate some detail. So like in the case of like political bias, maybe you say this policy, here's policy X and a Democrat supports it or a Republican supports it. And then you'll see that Democrats like the policy more when a Democrat supports it than a Republican supports it. So that would be like a traditional political bias. Um, in the qualitarianism paper, we had uh, people evaluate scientific studies that we're looking at. It was like a little description of a scientific study um, that was reporting intelligence differences between races or genders. And either those differences favored white people or black people or men or women. 
And what we see across cases across all of the studies is that liberals consistently evaluate the information as higher quality when it favors black people or women. Um, and the way we tried to go beyond the traditional approach, which is just to show these two pieces of information, um, in the final studies, we conducted them within subjects. So people get both conditions. So either they'll see like men score higher on uh, intelligence tests first or women score higher in intelligence tests. Um, and what this allows you to do is tell whether people think it's justified to treat that information differently. So if in a between subjects design, they say, this study is really great when women score higher, but it's terrible when men score higher. When you put it within subjects, if you see an order effect where people get, if they get the women higher first, they evaluate both studies higher quality. And if they get the men higher first, they evaluate both studies as lower quality. Um, and what that shows is essentially people think it's a bias and they think, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be treating these pieces of information differently. And that's precisely what we found uh, for liberals. So it seems that liberals think it's not justified to treat information differently, depending on whether a man or a woman is portrayed better or black people or white people are portrayed better, but they do. Um, and I mean, this, I, 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 anyone who doesn't believe these findings, please replicate it because this thing never fails to replicate. Um, uh, now someone will try to replicate and fail to replicate. <laughs> but no, I really don't. I actually really don't think they would. I've never not replicated this pattern. Uh, so it seems like a very robust relationship. Um, and so what's the, what's the argument that it's not a bias? Like, is that being ex explicated um, to you? A variety of things. So like one would be, and, and we try to cover this in the paper. So one would be, um, it is, reasonable to be skeptical of any science that favors um, sort of powerful groups because powerful people control science. Uh, therefore, anytime science says like white people or men have some quality that's better than other groups, we should be skeptical because um, they're the ones who control the information or something like that. Uh, that would be one argument that people have made. Um, uh, I mean, sometimes we get comment, we get like reviewer comments that are blatantly political. Like we've had people say, I'm afraid that this would undercut liberals, uh, um, admirable goals to promote equality. Um, which to me is like not something that is appropriate for a scientific <laughs> review, but clearly, uh, different people hmm. have different, um, views not, on what is relevant when you're evaluating a scientific paper. It's not completely clear to me, like why that would be the case. Like, I, obviously if you, if the study that you had was actually the, uh, a study saying that, um, that white people are better or that men are better or whatever, like that makes sense to argue against it from a political standpoint of like, it would be bad if we had this like published, but if the study is just that, like, liberals are by, like, they view scientific evidence in a biased way, just the same as conservatives do, like, why would that um, threaten the, like, liberal goals of equality and justice? I think and because then people might 
question whether liberals' evaluations of science can be trusted. So like in the other one, we did this with censorship and we had men versus women, um, black versus white and uh, Islam versus Christianity. They were on different things. Like for the men versus women, it was like leadership ability. A study found that men or women are better leaders. Um, And liberals show this preference for censoring information. They have stronger desire to censor information that portrays women less favorably than men, than vice versa. Um, and we we get similar comments for that one too. And I think the, the concern is it kind of might make people question the legitimacy of like liberals pro-science, <laughs> you know, because liberals like to think of themselves as like the science party, like um, trust the data <laughs> kind of thing, um, which is a whole nother issue. But yeah. I, I just think anything that would make liberals look biased on these issues, I understand that they would be afraid that that could interfere with their other goals. Um, I personally think that those kinds of things shouldn't influence how people evaluate scientific papers. Um, but not everyone feels that way. And I, I know this because I've been conducting study on mm. um, professors' beliefs about like what mm. should we be considering relevant when we decide what should be published. Mm. So the, man, I have so many thoughts about this. So the, the first argument, uh, the, the power argument, right? It's, it's, it's kind of describing a bias. <laughs> like, like uh, I don't know why you would say it. it's not a bias. Like people, people are just uh, assuming that a certain finding aligns with a certain group of people and that group of people shouldn't be trusted. It's not a bias. <laughs> like it's, it's totally a bias. It's just kind of a different kind of a mechanism, but you could certainly, you can certainly test. Oh, you're, you're saying you would, you would call it a bias. It's just like potentially like a justified bias or something. Well, I mean, on, on, on certain accounts, like, um, but like, yeah, but just whether it's justified or not, you, you can't establish in a scientific paper. That's not our job. Like, like you, you can still identify it as a bias and you could also test that sort of competing hypothesis, I would think, because couldn't you, you could manipulate who the authors are, uh, and see if it changes results. Yeah, we did have, um, the name we, we, it was actually, we did use a man's name as the, the scientist, but we used a, like, as racially neutral a name as we could possibly use. Um, so it wouldn't be clear, but you could, you could run a study and have like maybe a black woman as the scientist and publish this study. I, I guess I might as well run that study, although I can't publish the paper anyway. So it's like, what's the point, but I could run that study. I would, I would bet you'd find the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or someone who's um, listening, please run that study so I don't have to. <laughs> I mean, if you do run that study, I don't have to be a co-author, but I would like an acknowledgement. <laughs> so my second thought. So the I actually have more respect for the reviewer who just straight out says, mm. I, I, I think this is harmful. Therefore, like, you know, not on the basis of the science, I want to reject it based on the perceived harm that I think that this this finding would do. Because you can concoct a narrative where this finding could could be harmful, right? Like, so, yes, like Rachel said, you're not studying um, intelligence differences between races, but 
you are potentially exposing a bias that's relevant to how the scientific community talks about that kind of research if if it becomes sort of widely perceived that um, in the social sciences, people are incredibly biased, especially on these politically charged topics. You know, they're less likely to, um, they might be like more likely to d- doubt uh, what what social scientists tell them about things like intelligence differences between genders or, or races and stuff like that. So you could certainly see where there's this, you know, based on certain narratives of, of what might happen with this effect in the world and you could certainly see where there's somebody might have conflicting values, right? Like, um, yeah, we want to publish things that are true. We want to learn about truth in the world, but we also have a moral duty to um, reduce harm and care about harm. And I, I think that's like probably what's going on even, even when people are trying to make scientific arguments against this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that I think about a lot. And we talk about a lot on this podcast um, because harm is, is kind of just, it's a very ideologically loaded term, right? Like what, Mm -hmm. what one person thinks is harmful or what one person decides is a very sort of harmful study. Another person might not necessarily agree with. So what, I mean, you seem to be, based on like based on your career and based on based on the things you're trying to study like you seem to be very much of the opinion that uh we should pursue truth i don't know i'll let you put it in your own words but like would you say it's fair to say like you think that our role as scientists we shouldn't let concerns about harm reduction or try you know trying to like divine the future and and see like complex consequences of what we publish we should try to just be as unbiased as possible and just let the naked truth out there and then yeah yeah Yeah, it's a it's a complicated question and first i'll say that i i haven't had any reviewers only point to like harm they insert that in a list of complaints (laughs) about the studies themselves so i mean that's generally how these things go it's rare that a scientist will go after another paper and only point to their Mm. moral concerns about it um but no i i I actually wouldn't say that that's true i think there are a couple things about uh, let's say i i do think the goal of science is to pursue truth. I think oftentimes people's concerns, moral concerns are completely off and actually counterproductive because a lot of what science does, a lot of the point of understanding empirical reality is so that we can respond to things in effective ways, design effective interventions. And those are, you know, often doomed to fail if they're based off of bad information. So I think even these well-intentioned people who think they're trying to help, you know, marginalized groups by wanting certain kinds of research to be suppressed, they don't want people studying certain topics. Uh, I, I completely buy that they have great intentions. I don't think that that's the best way to help anyone. Um, and I do think that science, the, the, the chief goal is to pursue truth. That said, I wouldn't say that harm is completely irrelevant. Um, like if, if, if we were studying nuclear bombs and I was like, potentially I wanted to know if this, like, if I could make the like most damaging nuclear bomb of all time, um, like, 
I don't know that the truth is more important there <laughs> when there's something that really, really bad could happen. I mean, we've had these arguments with like gain of function research. Like what do we learn about viruses versus how much risk are we creating to like the like wiping out all of humanity? So I think I I think those things are relevant. Um, however, I think in the behavioral sciences, like there's very little we do that's consequential at all, let alone that's going to cause like severe harm to a particular group. Um, maybe I'm like a little bit naive about that. I understand that narratives are important. And like if certain information got out into the into the, the broader public, maybe people couldn't handle certain things and it would cause you know, we would regress to the 1950s or earlier and start treating people terribly on the basis of their, their race or gender, or whatever. Um, I, but I, I, I highly doubt it. <laughs> I don't think we're headed that direction. Uh, and I don't think anything science, the behavioral sciences are going to do are going to make that happen. Um, which is, is, um, I have a paper that is just a preprint right now um, on harm hypervigilance where I, I look at this and I particularly look at controversial research and have people report like what kinds of actions they would support in response to that research versus what people think people would support. And I find that people tend to overestimate what other people people do. So that that makes me feel more confident that that maybe like my harm assessments are um the fact that I, I think other people are exaggerating the likely harms that are going to come from stu studying controversial topics. Um, maybe I'm right about that. Uh, I could be wrong, though. And, you know, different people draw the lines in different places. I guess I draw the line further than a lot of my colleagues would. Um, probably for two reasons. One, because I, I, I generally think that truth is the best way to make the world a better place. Um, and I also think really negative social consequences are pretty unlikely. So yeah, just to quickly follow up and clarify on that, I think there's sort of two things that you could be saying. One is that um, the social harm that comes from these studies wouldn't be a big harm, like especially not compared to like, uh, you know, nuclear bombs or whatever. It's like not that, not that big a deal. And then another thing is, it's just like unlikely, like it would be a big deal if mm. uh, we, you know, went back to being super racist and sexist, but that's just like very unlikely to happen. So which of those are you saying could be both? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think I would say unlikely, because uh, I actually could imagine a, a world in which like if you like take that Al Shabli paper that was like controversial for finding potential gender differences and like mentorship ability, like you could imagine a world where those results are published um, and people are like, well, you know, women shouldn't really be mentoring people anymore. Men are better at it. Let's let's just have men do the mentoring. Uh, that that could happen and that would probably be bad. I think almost everyone would agree that that's bad. Um but I just don't think that would ever happen. Like, I, I just don't think society is at a um, at risk of sliding that far back uh, 
And in fact, I expect we'll continue to go the direction that we're going in, sort of regardless of what science shows um, on any of these issues. Like even if women, even if we were to, no one will ever study that topic again. But if they did, (laughs) uh, if they did, and we were to accept that as an empirical reality, I think it would do pretty much nothing. Um, Or it might inspire some interventions like to figure out, well, why is this happening? And can we make, can we create gender equality, which is, I think, what people generally are striving for. And I think they will strive for that no matter what. Um, And so publishing gender differences results, I just don't think is going to have a, a huge effect effect on society. But that said, maybe it's because people have these freakouts about these kinds of findings that they don't have these pernicious consequences because society reacts. And then uh, we say, we hate that. Let's not do anything with that finding. Let's stop this research here um, and never discuss it again. Um, So I don't know. Yeah, I remember uh, one of our early podcasts was about the Al Shabli paper and um, mm. I actually remember you tweeting and it might have been where you got this idea of, of people exaggerating the potential harms because I remember you probably <laughs> tw- tweeting about it and saying well what has been the consequence of this paper being published and everything everything was good it was like people people mm-hmm. were devoting more more money to um to promoting women in STEM and, and mm-hmm. et cetera. And there was, yeah, no evidence. Of- and the, the journal itself was like, we're going to launch and launch initiatives to support women. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the actual consequences of that paper being published, mm. if anything, were like pro women. Mm. Yeah. It's when I, hmm. it's so complex to me because I, I think like, it's it's definitely true that um, we have a moral obligation to a- act in a way as to to reduce harm, right? Like and and so so in one sense, the the scientist who says, well, you know, like yes, I'm pursuing truth, but I'm also a human being on this planet, and while I'm here, I need to be reducing harm. But I guess like I kind of come down in a similar place to you, which is that well, if you <laughs> If you do science in a way that you're reducing harm in terms of suppressing certain certain findings that you think might be harmful or just not not sort of letting anybody study certain things where like some taboo finding could be could be found, it's really not clear to me that you're I, I just feel like it's very possible you're creating more harm than you're preventing. I mean, because I mean this is largely what why so many people don't trust social science or I I would argue why, why they shouldn't trust social science in particular areas. And it's, it's almost ironic how much pushback you get to the idea that there's sort of bias influencing our field when part of the fallout to the Al Shebley paper was people explicitly saying, well, hell yes, I'm going to hold different findings to different different standards of evidence if they if they are finding something harmful like i don't understand how people can on the one hand explicitly support this this mechanism which clearly would lead to a bias in a literature if like findings turn out a certain way and they have to meet a different standard of evidence than if they turned out a different way uh but at the same time be so offended by the idea that political there's political bias creeping in and I, I think part of it is that like the project 
the project only works if you lie about it, right? Like mm. the, the, the harm redu- reducing scientist can't tell the public, oh yeah, I, I don't, I don't publish stuff that I think is harmful, but mm-hmm. here, be- believe what I'm telling you in the stuff that I did f- find the harm reducing scientist has to embrace a level of dishonesty and pulling the wool over the public's eyes that they are, they are doing all this harm reduction behind the scenes, but to the public, they have to present themselves as completely objective and unbiased. And I think, I think that's where I get off because I also have this other value of honesty and like the, the dishonesty of doing that really um, is just uh, like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with, which is almost like a whole separate value to like pursuing truth in science, like doing science objectively or, or harm reduction. So um, yeah, like, I I don't know. I I, long winded way of saying like, I I, I just kind of agree that it's just not that clear that like our efforts to reduce harm by censoring certain sciences actually do reduce harm. Like they might, but it's such a, that's such a complex causal question and and come up with such quick answers to it. Yeah, we don't. I, I think I think you actually bring up a really important point, which is that people want to have their cake and eat it too in this area, which is they want the legitimacy of being scientists and saying I'm pro science and science is this objective thing that cares about truth. Um, it's the best way to get to the truth because it's so objective and because of the competition of ideas and, you know, the review process and blah, blah, blah. And it's all about quality. Um, they want that legitimacy at the same time, they want to be able to control what is going to be up for consideration uh, in terms of what people study and then um, whether certain things get published, even if they're of similar quality as other kinds of studies that show the opposite effect. Um, and I think that's precisely one reason a lot of people hate my research, even though it's... I the topics itself don't even seem that taboo to me. Like, is it really that big of a deal if liberals have some biases? Like there's their entire fields of research and social psychology, which are all just about like conservatives, terrible traits. And there are almost nothing on liberals, almost nothing. Um, And we know that liberals have biases and even like liberal scholars will say, of course, liberals have some biases, but they won't tell you what they are. Um, because they on, don't want on. to identify. <laughs> hang on. Do you do you really believe what you just said? Because the the paper. What did I just say? That that like your your stuff's fairly anodyne and like I would say you, you are like poking the it's center a, of the hornet's nest. Like, I, don't I, don't know, think, I can't think of many things that it's a it's like, a level removed from the controversy though, right? It's yeah, not about it's so linked to like it's it is. But 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 I think it is it is precisely pointing out the possibility that liberals, these people and liberal scientists in particular, liberal social scientists, pointing out the possibility that they might not be these objective truth seekers in the way they want the world to view them, um, pointing out the areas that are their kind of like sensitive areas. And even though I can't publish these papers, I'm pretty sure everyone knows these are the liberal sensitive areas. I've interviewed a lot of professors and every single one says that these are the issues. Like you can't publish anything that makes women look bad. Um, Everyone knows that. Everyone knows if you find that finding, you're going to struggle to publish it. And if you find the opposite, you're going to, it's going to be a breeze. (laughs) Um, 
but but they don't want anyone talking about it right not out loud um so yeah i think um and then again yeah to bring to the issue of of the harm like we don't we we so far as i can tell when you get these public concerns about scientific findings and there is a discussion of the harm involved like of course there are always scientific criticisms but if harm is part of the conversation um as it often is we never ask for evidence we just assume like with the Shabley paper i didn't see anyone forward any evidence that any concrete data <laughs> that would say that this paper was going to do any damage to women um i don't think there is any evidence of it of course it's not like hard to imagine how it could happen but would it actually happen um i don't think so um and so they think they're kind of making this empirical assertion like obviously these findings would damage you know female academics careers and they've come so far um but it's just an assumption and a, an assumption that's almost oblivious to the reality of what really happens is which is the pushback caused the very opposite thing to happen and 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 so yeah i it's a complicated issue <laughs> So um, I guess like at this point, some listeners might be wondering uh, about your own political biases. And I don't yeah. know how much you want to talk about, like, where, how do you identify and like, um, how, I would also, be how happy does that affect to, your science? People tell me all the time that I should tell people that I'm a liberal <laughs> and that I've only ever voted for Democrats. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've considered myself left-leaning pretty much since I started caring about politics, which is why I say I actually started off as a pretty traditional social psychologist, and I like agree with them on most policy issues. Um, it's just that I also think that liberals have biases, uh, and I actually think because I'm a liberal and because that's who I know. Granted, my my family is actually um, more conservative. Like a lot of my family is religious, and um, I don't know who my parents voted for, but uh, um, or who they. I think my dad tends to vote Republican. I'm not sure about my mom, um, but anyway, I. I have always identified as liberal. Um, and I think, and once you join grad school, you're pretty much surrounded by liberals. That's pretty much everyone I'm friends with is a liberal. Um, and I think it's because I'm surrounded by that all the time <laughs> that I can see it so clearly. Um, and I think that's also why it bothers me more. Like, I don't really, I, I, I think conservatives have just as many flaws as liberals and possibly more actually. And I think, um, scholar and in terms of like having a grip on reality, uh, and be, like, if you were to give liberals the average liberal and the average conservative, like a test of empirical reality, who would be closer to the truth? Um, I've actually debated this quite a bit with Bo Weingard, who is the, the co-host on my podcast. He thinks that I don't know what he thinks, but I think liberals might have a firmer grasp on the truth. Um, um, but on the issue, right? yeah, yeah, of course it definitely depends on the issue. Um, but if you could total it up, I'm saying, mm-hmm. um, but you know, so many people have studied conservative things and almost no one studies liberal things. Um, and, uh, and, liberals have control of a lot of intellectual space. They, 
dominate academia. They really dominate like the behavioral and social sciences. They dominate the media. Um, a lot of public and probably the majority of public intellectuals are pretty far left. And so even though like conservatives certainly have issues too, I don't find them those issues as interesting because I don't think they have as much power in society as liberal biases do. And that's why I find that particular area interesting. Now, could I be biased now that I've started to study liberal bias and like, that's my thing. <laughs> uh, so I want to make liberals look worse than they really are. Um, like, I suppose that's a possibility, but it certainly doesn't make my life any easier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not helping me publish any papers. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah. I think but yeah, I don't, I don't claim to be immune to bias. I'm sure. I'm sure I have biases. Yeah. I think it's interesting that like everyone, like, I feel the same need to, and I'm sure Paul, you like, I don't know if you've come across this, but like you sort of like start talking about controversial things with people and you, you have to say like, I'm a liberal, you know, I'm, I'm on your side. We're on the same team. Like, don't worry. I wouldn't, you know, God forbid, I wouldn't be a conservative, but then you're <laughs> like, once you say that, then like, you're able to uh, sort of engage in the conversation more, but it's like, that's, that's so bad. Like that, 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 dynamic exists and that like you aren't going to be taken seriously if you are a conservative. Um, and it just like, yeah, it makes me feel really bad for the very small handful of conservatives in our field. Yeah, it, it, it is. And that's actually one reason I, I often don't talk about it because it feels like kind of wrong to me because it's as though I think it's a legitimate reason to like, potentially take me seriously and think that I'm not just like a far right person who just like hates the libs and wants to like destroy them any way I can. Um, I, but yeah, I mean, it's that, that is the reality. And I guess that's why people feel the need to signal their political allegiances and professional settings, which they do fairly often. Um, and yeah, I do, I do. I, because of who I am and how I've, I guess my reputation in the field, like I'm probably, I probably know more conservatives than almost anyone because they come to me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they email me, they ask to talk to me. Um, uh, and I do feel bad for them. Uh, and they feel, I think even more like outsiders and a lot of them are just closeted. Um, and, uh, I think it's a kind of a, a lonely, a lonely existence for those people. Mm. So what do you, what was it that made you, I'm, I'm kind of curious what, like what your first few projects in grad school were now, like, cause you said you were like much more um, traditional kind of social, social psych um, mm -hmm. kind of signed up for social psych grad school to save everybody and <laughs> <laughs> change the world. And, um, what was it that sort of like, changed your focus and and you know there's 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 a lot of I think there's a lot of people that see the kind of things that you're talking about and just leave right like because it's not that pleasant in a lot of ways to stay in a field where you are kind of some people like despise you and I and I and Corey honestly like I don't know how what proportion of our field despises you like I, it's 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 a really interesting open question to me because <laughs> I don't I don't think Twitter is 
and even nearly representative. I see that a lot of people are still willing to engage with you in the adversarial collaboration project. And then there's a lot of people just not on Twitter who probably haven't heard of you because like you're not doing work in their area. And if you talk to their university, they'd probably just find it kind of interesting um, just because it's different. Like there's not many people like studying this in this area. So yeah, what, what was it that kind of changed your focus and what was it that has sort of kept you going and <laughs> you know why, why are you still why are you still pushing out these papers to the 13th journal I mean I might give up eventually I so my my like my very first like successful research area which I actually do still publish on from time to time um is free will belief and um so my early research found that people's free will beliefs were partially motivated by desires to punish other people. This was actually very well received by academia <laughs> and liberals in general, because it, um, it suggests that part of the reason we view people as responsible for their behavior is because we have these like desires to blame and judge and punish other people. Um, and so it kind of undercuts the notion of responsibility a little bit, which is sort of consistent with, um, I guess, left-wing desires. So that was not controversial at all. That work is really easy to publish. Um, and I, I still, you know, give talks on, on that, uh, and still do a little work in that area. I, I started looking at with political bias, it was, it was, it was the meta-analysis, which was my, my grad advisor's idea to conduct that meta-analysis and the meta-analysis, it, meta-analysis itself wasn't like particularly interesting to me, but I was very interested by the response to it. Um, because we went in thinking, you know, either conservatives will be more biased than liberals, or this is a human thing and there'll be no differences. Didn't even entertain the possibility that liberals could be more biased. Um, and we found that they were the same. And then we were all like, huh, that's interesting. Like that was our reaction. <laughs> But it, uh, people did not like it. And I was like, that's so odd. <laughs> like, is it that big of a deal if liberals and conservatives are like similarly biased? Can I ask a uh, quick, quick clarifying question? Mm -hmm. So these kind of studies, what kind of bias in particular were, were you looking at? So we only included studies that were like the studies I described earlier. So it had to be where there was like an equal piece of information. So like a classic example that maybe a lot of people will be familiar with is the Lord Ross Lepper studies with the death penalty, comparing states before and after they adopted the death penalty mm -hmm. or neighboring states. And the results show the death penalty is effective at deterring uh, crime or it's not. So it's, maybe it's, it's about political. So it's kind of bias about interpreting political information in, in particular. It, yeah, it also had like um, Cohen party over policy kind of studies. So like, here's an ambiguous policy and a Democrat or Republican supports it. Or here's an action, a, a Democratic rep a president or a Republican president is the one who did that action. Mm -hmm. So it was all manipulating some piece of information, but the, the core of the information was identical. And then people evaluate that piece of information. And it was, I think, like, around 50 effect sizes for that one. Um, um, but yeah, that, I think the reaction to that kind of intrigued me that people were annoyed. Um, and and how, that, how so? Like, was this in, the, were you on Twitter already at this time? No, how, no, How did no. that annoyance kind of reach your ears? Well, 
at least a few people before it even got published submitted commentaries. Um, only one of them got published, and that was Jostin Barron's. Um, John Jost, of course, hates the findings because um, he thinks <laughs> conservatives are worse in all ways. <laughs> um, I, I actually have started to really like John Jost because he's just the most extreme version of, of the like raging, like left wing. You know what you're getting with him. At yeah, least, you yeah. Know? <laughs> I mean, he, he doesn't. I don't think he. he yeah, maybe he would object to the being accused of bias i think equally likely he'd just say damn right i'm biased that's because like the left is right about everything but But um, i don't think he would say that's biased he would say like he's like the truth yeah exactly yeah that Um, the truth is is liberal how did how how are people writing commentaries before it's published like is this word Um, just spreading through back channels that this dangerous one of our co-authors had presented the findings Uh, at a conference uh i think that must have been how word got out before it even was published um um but so there were some critiques and then you know you just kind of hear like back i wasn't on twitter at the time um but you just kind of hear what people are saying. And I think Pete got quite a few emails about it. Um, Other people liked it. (laughs) It wasn't universally hated. Um, But the fact that it was like a meta-analysis and it was pretty like clear cut and we used pretty much the standard studies that are used. It was like Mm. very social psyche. Like this is what we do. Um, And all of a sudden, how we define bias is being called into question altogether because there's just no way that liberals could be as biased as conservatives. Mm. Um, And so I think that kind of intrigued me because I was like, okay, you know, this this was shortly I think it was published shortly after the initial conversations were happening or at least it was being taken seriously for the first time that you know, social psychology is like 95% left-leaning. Do we need to worry about that? And people started looking at, uh, you know, like the in-bar papers, looking at people, will they openly state that they're willing to discriminate against conservatives and things like hiring? So that was all co-occurring with us working on the meta-analysis. So probably that was the first time I considered seriously maybe this actually is a problem. Like maybe it is an issue that we're all overwhelmingly left-leaning. And even if my biases at the time were, well, liberals are more scientific and they they care more about the scientific method and it makes sense. Um, I think that was when I, I first started thinking, well, maybe this is a problem and maybe there are certain biases and maybe this is affecting how we evaluate information and what gets published and what we could then consider true. Um, um, and that's how I started looking into liberal bias as well. Um, I presented that poster, a poster of the meta-analysis at Florida State and Bo Weingard, my, my podcast co-host, um, he came to my poster and then he, I think he was already looking at liberal bias. Hmm. Um, and that's when I started working with him on the equalitarianism hmm. paper and looking at liberal biases and then... I mean, I've gone from there. Um, uh, why do I stick around? <laughs> yeah, so what, yeah, I don't is there, know. Is there part of you that <laughs> kind of, is there like some like really pure part of you that thought that, well, if I can use science to show people that there's these issues with liberal bias in science, they'll all, they'll be convinced and, and they'll, the field will change for the better. <laughs> I don't think I 
I ever thought like they'll all be convinced. Um, I do think that I'm probably making it a little bit harder for the biases to exist by pointing them out to people. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Actually, that's probably not even true. Um, no, I, I, I don't actually know how long I'll stick around. <laughs> it is, it is actually really hard. Um, and I try to like, not give a shit, um, but, you know, I'm a human and humans give a shit about being hated, unfortunately. I wish I cared less than I do. Um, I must care less than the average person. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't do what I'm doing. But I do care. And I get like, like I went to SPSP in February and I was like super anxious before that because I was like, all these people that I hate are going to be there and I don't want to see them. And then what if they come up and try to talk to me and tell me they hate me and I'm a terrible person and blah, blah, blah. Um, no one did that. And like everyone I saw was nice to me, <laughs> which is um, uh, maybe a reminder that we tend to focus on the negative. And I, I, maybe I think more people hate me than actually do. Like, I don't even know if I were to estimate, if I estimated like two years ago, how many people in my field like loathe me with a fiery passion and would light me on fire if they had the chance, I might've said like 75%. <laughs> now I would probably say like maybe 1% and then maybe like 20% kind of hate me. And then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there's, there's like some X percent doesn't really hate you, but they know for their career, they have to steer clear of you. And oh, I'm sure that's, not, there's not like a group of those people and, as yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, even people that knew me before um, and who were like too good of friends with me to like turn on me, <laughs> uh, like acknowledge that there's a trade-off to like working with me on things like, you know, this might, this will be harder to publish with you as a co-author. <laughs> um, uh and that's, that might be true. That, I mean, that probably is true. I should be opting for blind review these days. Um. <laughs> yeah. Have you um, thought about what we, what you would do instead if you left academia? Um, I've thought about it, um, but I don't know. Like I love doing research. Like that's, I went to grad school because I like doing research. I've stuck around because I like doing research. I like doing research more than I like teaching. Um, I don't want to stop doing that ever. And I also don't want other people to tell me what to research. <laughs> so like, what are the jobs <laughs> where you get to choose your own research? <laughs> um, I don't know how many jobs there are like that. I potentially would try to just become like a full-time writer. Maybe, um, maybe I would write books. Maybe I would just write online journals. Although it would be devastating to me if I didn't have access to an IRB so I could keep running studies. <laughs> so um, there are independent IRBs that uh, are, there? are not affiliated with universities. Yeah. So, to pay them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it works, probably, but you know, I'm sure you'll I, learn enough from Substack. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I would maybe do Substack and maybe try to make money off of the podcast I do now. We don't charge anything. Maybe I would try to make money off of that. Um um, but I, yeah, I can't imagine that I could go just do a regular job at this point because I just don't think I could adjust to, uh, like a kind of nine to five thing where someone else tells me what to do. Um, I worked for Heterodox Academy for a little while and that was a hard adjustment because it was 
it was like more like I had to get these certain things done and it was much more restrictive than anything I'd been used to for a really, really, really long time. Um, Mm. And so like what I'm doing now is amazing. Like I'm just, I just do what I want all day, every day. Uh, It's a lot of work, but it's, it's all fun. So. (laughs) I, yeah, it's interesting what you say about SPSP and people were like nice to you. And I, I don't know. It's like, it's been a theme of this podcast that, you know, when you look at psych Twitter, just how warped a view of the field uh, are you getting? You, you sort of, and especially when there's these outrage mobs and it just seems like, oh my God, every, everybody. And, you know, like people have had to keep reminding me, no, no, it's not everybody. Like, it's, mm-hmm. you know, um, 90% of people on Twitter aren't tweeting. It's the most extreme mm-hmm. people that are tweeting. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. And there's I, all the people that aren't on Twitter. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And I mean, yeah, so you've engaged in this adversarial collaboration project, and it seems like people have been more or less happy to engage with you on that. Um, I, I want to ask about the Psych Inquiry article, right? So, like, mm-hmm. Psych Inquiry, it seems like one of the coolest slash toughest things you can do to write a Psych Inquiry target article because you just sort of, like, you have to sort of propose something and then I don't know how many replies you get. Like, it's often about 10, 10 academics sort of writing responses to sort of pick holes in what you what what you wrote and then you get a chance to respond um so i've read uh your psych inquiry article and a couple of responses to it but i'm curious from your point of view what did you think were the best points made in response like did 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 you think there were any like good counter arguments that sort of made you and Bo go, oh, huh, we didn't, we didn't think about it that way and, and sort of broadened your, broadened your thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there were quite a few, I'm trying to think, like maybe like half were sort of critical and half were supportive. <laughs> the argument that's challenging um, that to this day, I mean, I'm still working on trying to study this issue is like what is what is the evidence that there is bias in science like you can point to all of these cases um but it's not like a serious systematic exploration of the problem and i don't think there's ever been any like compelling clear evidence for like a big issue and that's um what jay van babel part of his argument his, his bigger argument is really just like science has all of these um constraints and we have the peer review system and you know one scholar's bias cancels out another scholar's bias and i do think that's that's true in a lot of cases um and then he did that study with uh his former student diego reynero and they uh, looked at quick the rep- quick story oh. about that so okay, I, had, okay. I had i was well i was at uc berkeley i had that exact idea oh and yeah I, I talked to leif nelson and another professor like a causal inference expert about it and both of them said the same thing which is just that like they didn't really see a feasible way of coding like the mm-hmm. political the political ideology of like a hypothesis in a paper but i had that exact same idea and then i was like oh okay yeah like you're probably right so i dropped it and then like the very next spsp it's all anybody's talking about mm-hmm. this so the lesson is don't worry about measurement. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it's all that. Lesson is don't listen to Leif. 
That would be, uh, I mean, a criticism of mine of the papers. Yeah, like the coding of the, well, one, they had like no conservative papers. So I don't, you can't really draw conclusions about like left versus right leaning papers. But yeah, the coding and like low inter-rater reliability. Um, but uh, as a result, so so they published that paper and the, the, the take home there is like, no, maybe bias isn't really as big of a problem as people like me say it is. Um, but Phil Tatlock, who I work with at Penn, he also was very critical of that paper. And so we approached Jay and Jarrett, who are co-authors on that paper, to do an adversarial collaboration, uh, which we're doing now. And that was a huge problem. So the very first thing we did, the way Jay and Jarrett and Diego and them, they coded, they had people read the abstracts and code the political slant based on the abstracts. We tried to do that. Um, and we hired Richard Hanania, who's like, uh, kind of right-leaning, but very, like, tuned into, like, potential bias in science. And Jesse Single, who also, he's left-leaning, but he also looks at um, bias in science. We we hired them to code 100 abstracts, and then mm. I coded them, and Phil coded them, and we had an AI code them. And we compared we looked at our reliability and i think it ranged from like negative 0.1 to 0.2 across all of us wow and i was like well shit like if if we can't do it (laughs) who the hell can um so uh we decided that coding the ideology based on the abstracts is just pretty much hopeless because the abstracts basically a sort of like technical summary of what was done. It doesn't include the context of like, why is this an important question and what are the implications of these findings? So we now are training an AI to detect the political slant of general discussion sections. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ran an initial model and it looked promising so far. So we, we basically, you can find the, you can get a political ideology score of social science professors um, from their campaign contributions mm-hmm. um and then uh download their papers and code their papers as the the first author's ideology and then use that program to go back and code a new set of papers and predict the political ideology of the people who wrote them um and with the small subset that we we've we've coded so far we found like a 0.4 correlation between what the model predicted the politics were of the writer and their actual ideology um but but we're collecting um which we're trying to collect like 10 to 12 times as many papers now um to make a more reliable model but that's what we're trying to do now and so we're trying to figure out a way to code the political slant of general discussion sections, which could be if it's if it turns out to work pretty well, which I think it probably will now that it's it was already so promising on a really small subset of data. Um, you could potentially code the political slant of like any paper. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. And you even could like look at um, are your own papers biased in a particular way, which I probably will be curious to see <laughs> what my what my general discussions uh, what how how it predicts my ideology based on those. But how are you? Uh, I have so many questions. How are you able to like code the papers? If you like, how many conservative paper authors are there? Like, how can you even make a reliable model if you're missing the second? Half? Um, so we looked up all of the social science professors in this 
campaign contribution database for like 20 years. Um, and I think we had at least a couple hundred conservatives, uh, many thousands of liberals, <laughs> but at least a couple hundred conservatives. Um, and we prioritized collecting their papers. So we're collecting up to 10 first authored papers um, from all of the professors and um, and we're trying to target papers that have potential political significance. So like if it's on like bird songs, we wouldn't include it. Um, Do you have any uh, like insight into like what the sort of what the neural net is picking up or is it just this black box? Um, there, there are like top weighted words. Um, although off the top of my head, I, I can't really remember. I think like maybe economics or something was on the right. I forget what was on the left, something like maybe like affecting, I don't know. Um, but, but what, so, so marginalized. <laughs> probably that it's will probably be on the list somewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, the, we, we used the initial coding or the initial model to code a set of meta-analyses because that's where we're looking for political bias. So we want to look at, is there a difference between more left-leaning and right-leaning meta-analyses and publication bias um, and how much they're cited in the effect sizes and the sample sizes? Um, and we use the model to code, I think it was around 350 meta-analyses and the model coded every single one as left-leaning. Um, so but, we, and I should say Jay hasn't signed off on that. He finds it implausible that all of them would be left-leaning. Um, I don't find but, that, sorry, I don't find that implausible, but like how, um, just to clarify, like when you say that it's coding something as left-leaning or right-leaning, is that just saying like it's predicting that the author is going to be left leaning or right leaning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so if that's the case, then like, is it, that's not necessarily bias. Like, it's just like, maybe they use different, like if, a if a conservative author is more likely to write people of color and a, a left-wing author is more likely to write BIPOC, like the, mm-hmm. the model is going to be really good at differentiating the two, but you wouldn't say like, that's a bias just because they use different terminology. Right. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'm not calling the slant itself a bias. I'm not. Yeah. 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 So if I, if I did say that before, then, then I'm sorry about that. I'm not saying the fact that the paper is coded as left-leaning is necessarily indicative of bias. We're, we're trying to test whether the political slant of the paper is related to other measures of bias. So do more left-leaning papers get published with um, with more evidence of publication bias? Do more left-leaning papers get published with smaller sample sizes, with smaller effect sizes? Um, um, but that is a potential issue, which is it could be that in these meta-analyses, very few of them have anything to do with politics, um, but scholars sort of signal their ideology in the words they choose to use. Um, and so even if my paper is on like seizures, uh, I still communicate with the reviewers that I'm a liberal by like using certain keywords. Yeah. Like if you were reporting your demographics and you, and you reported BIPOC, like maybe then a reviewer knows right away you're liberal. Um, and is that the same thing? Like if, if reviewers are nicer to liberal scholars, 
even if they're writing on things that aren't liberal at all, that is a different kind of thing than being more favorable toward left-leaning findings. And I'm kind of more interested in the latter. Um, so that is a potential challenge for uh, our, our model. And maybe the solution is restricting the analysis to politically significant papers only, um, which we could do, but then that would reduce our sample size and, uh, which is okay. I, just I have to say I was, <laughs> I was, I was completely unprepared for the level of complexity in this analysis. <laughs> like I was looking at those slides you sent me and going, Whoa, this is, this is an epic project. Um, <laughs> I hope we'll you see. stay in academia long enough to finish it. <laughs> I will finish that one. We're, we're doing another one with failed replication. So we're looking at, we're going to try to use the same model. We have a data set of failed replications. I think like 270 papers that failed to replicate. And we're looking at um, citation, like survival. Uh, so are more left-leaning papers after they failed? So I guess the question is, are left less left-leaning papers once they fail to replicate, do their citations drop off at a steeper rate than more left-leaning papers, uh, which would indicate that scholars kind of like cling to left-leaning findings um, more even after like there's been mm. some some doubt cast on, on the replicability of the findings. Um, that one I should have initial results for mm. in like three days. <laughs> wow, cool. So I, I'm sorry, we should have postponed this. <laughs> and, and how many people who sort of don't already believe in this, do you think will be convinced mm. by, by this? By yeah, that's this a good evidence? question. Like, well, I guess it depends on what are their reasons for not believing it. I mean, uh, there probably are people who just wouldn't be persuaded by anything. Uh, and, you know, like yeah. I'm not, I'm not targeting those people anyway. Um, I don't know. I think, I think, I think most of our peers are still persuaded by data, not all data, not all the time. And it is easy enough to point out flaws in just about any study and come up with a reason to ignore the findings. Um, but in general, I think people are persuaded by data and they're definitely persuaded by a mountain of data. Um, so I think the more you can, the, the stronger evidence you have for something, the more people are forced to accept it. Um, maybe that's my approach. <laughs> maybe that's why I keep running these studies that I know no one will ever publish. <laughs> no, no. I, so, I, I, so visiting, visiting scholar, are you, hmm. so you, you say you're not sure you'll stay in academia, but if you say you were to stay in academia, like, are you like on the job market? I, I don't, yeah. So like, I, I just don't understand where, you, where you sort of are in the <laughs> academic career ecosystem. Like, are you, would you be applying for assistant professor jobs, the same jobs I'll be applying for, or would uh, you? That's a good question. I'm not going on the job rank? market. I'm not going on the job market this fall. Um, right now, I only have funding in my current position through like next fall, which would mean I should be going on the market this fall if I wanted to get a job this fall. Um, but I don't. I'm trying to get funding to stay in my current position for like another like maybe three to five years. If I could get funding to stay for five years, I would. Um, Can you say and, where your grant is from? 
Uh, right now, well, we have a couple of small grants and one big grant. Our bigger one is from the Sorrel Freedom Trust, which is like a libertarian think tank. Um, and then we have a couple smaller ones from Penn and Wharton and some other places. Um, uh, we have a little one through the Institute for Humane Studies, which is also like a libertarian, like a free speech kind of org. So why, uh, why Penn? Um mainly because of Phil. So um, when I decided I wanted to stay in academia, um, I had met him at the heterodoxy in psychology conference earlier. And he had said to me, if there's ever any way I could help your career, you let me know. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Phil, <laughs> I need a job. Um but yeah, basically he got me a visiting scholar appointment there and then we applied for a bunch of grants together and we got a few of them and then I was able to hire myself <laughs> at Penn. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a pretty solid gig. I highly, I mean, you don't have the job security because you're grant, you're not, you know, you're like mm. you have to keep finding money, but in terms of having freedom and how you spend your time, there's nothing better than just mm-hmm. being, working on your own grant. Will you be able to hire Paul? <laughs> actually i mean if you i i'm looking for money to hire postdocs so if you want to do you're a postdoc now right so if you want to do another postdoc which i recommend because like postdocs are that's a way better job than this <laughs> so much better yeah, yeah. not having to teach is pretty sweet it's true it is and not but having to be on the committees and like the, deal yeah. with the drama but you also want to like put down roots eventually like like postdocs are so short term that even though it's cool like yeah you you're not gonna buy a house or you yeah um and you that's still the hardest thing about academia i think is just mm-hmm. never knowing what the next step is going to be and never being able to just like chill out you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> buy yeah. a house until tenure in which you can just do nothing but chill out and yeah. nobody, nobody can do anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see very little evidence that that's what people do once they get tenure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they buy a house, but they don't chill out. So yeah, maybe so, some of them do. Tell, tell me about your cheerleading career. So I want to go back to, like, <laughs> I, I, uh, like, like I was saying, I really think that it's this fascinating, unique aspect of American culture, the, the enthusiasm for like participating in group activities. And, you know, it's like in Europe, like the, every sort of town or village ha- has these like millennia old festivals that they do and stuff like that. But it's so fascinating to me that in this young country of the U S you have developed so many just idiosyncratic, unique <laughs> just traditions that like almost everybody participates in. So I went in, in Northern California, I went to a high school football game one Friday night. Cause I was like, my wife and I were watching Friday night lights. And I was like, I just want to see this for myself. And it was so fascinating as an outsider. And what I, what I really like liked about it. And what I think that the movie slightly lied to me about was that like, <laughs> it's actually, I think like, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, but it felt quite inclusive. Right. So like, the the like the big like tough guys are on the football team uh and then but the girls are doing the cheerleading and they weren't like not like the movies it wasn't just all the hot like thin girls (laughs) it was like all the girls it seemed like there wasn't 
no offense to that Chilean troop that I saw, but it, it didn't seem like they had huge barriers to entry. And then, like, <laughs> but then all the sort of skinny non-athletic kids were in the band on the field and sort of having a great time as well and taking part. And then, I don't know. And then like all these parents and people from the community, like were there watching and that would never happen in Australia. Like nobody is showing up to watch high school people play a sports game in Australia. Nobody cares. Like, and I just found it like such a, interesting display of com- sort of community engagement and community togetherness. And like, so, yeah. And I, and I did feel sort of lied to because like the, the stereotype of the cheerleader is this sort of mean popular girl. And like, you're sort of bullying, bullying the unpopular kids and stuff like that. And like, I guess like from being here and seeing it up close, like, I'm just not sure it's, it's really like that. I think it might actually be a bit more like inclusive and wholesome, but I'm interested in your experience because you said you were a cheerleader for a long time. Are you asking her if she used to bully people? Am I I I the mean girl? (laughs) You might have to ask my classmates. I can hook you up. Yeah, I don't know if we'll get it on. Well, this is the, no, this is perspective of a former cheerleader. She could be totally totally biased. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I'm self-aware. Um, no, I mean, I think the way you described it is pretty accurate in that it is like kind of an event where a lot of different people come together. Um, and you even have like the student section and that's all kinds of different people. Um, I mean, our cheerleading squad, I would say was, it, there were barriers to entry because we were like a more uh, like gymnastics oriented cheerleading squad. You had to be able to do a a backflip to be on the varsity and you had to be able to do a back handspring I think to be on JV no but because I had back surgery Um, otherwise I totally would be able to I was able to up until the day I had back surgery actually I might still be able to do one but I'm scared to try (laughs) was it the backflips that led to you needing back yes okay yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's actually two back surgeries that were both because of my days doing gymnastics so you'd still be able to do backflips if not for the injury i can still do a backflip on like a trampoline but i would be scared to do one on the ground although i'm still impressed sometimes i think about doing one (laughs) now you're making me want to try (laughs) (laughs) bust my surgery open and have to go get another one it was really bad (laughs) have health care in this visiting (laughs) back surgery is like super unpleasant i don't recommend it at all um but it, it is like a very community thing and the band does have a great time and they're maybe like they're like a, a group of friends and the football players have a great time. And I mean, even though our cheerleading squad, again, like we were, you know, you had to be like a pretty decent athlete to be on the squad. We weren't like all like one group that hung out all the time privately in school. Um we were from all kinds of different social groups and we got along really well when we were together, but like at school, we weren't necessarily like all in the same group of friends. Um, so in that sense, yeah, it wasn't like we walked down the hallways with linked arms, Are you <laughs> like still in touch wearing with pink. <laughs> Are you still in touch with any of your fellow? Um, like I'm friends with them on Facebook or Instagram or something. And I'll, you know, comment on their things once in a while a lot of them have kids and a lot of them are doing cool stuff like any in academia um um, no one of them is a lawyer one of them is a nurse anesthetist one of them is a obgyn one of them is i think a real estate agent they're doing a lot of different things (laughs) um but yeah, no, it, I, I do think it was like a positive thing and it is like, yeah, it's kind of cute and 
everyone's excited together. Although my, our football team wasn't very good. So <laughs> it was a lot of like losing <laughs> and well, our Rachel basketball understands. team was even worse at first, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people do go, like there are a lot of people there. Um, for both football and basketball, which, yeah, it is, I guess it's kind of weird, like watching high school sports, but um, I don't understand why watching high school sports would be that much different from watching regular sports. No, it's true. Like well, the, the, the game can be just as exciting. <laughs> yeah. But once you, you habituate, you have habitu- like, it's like watching like, um, hmm. All right, whatever. It's like watching women's sports as compared to men's sports. Like you just. Oh my god! <laughs> you did not just say that. <laughs> now you got canceled. <laughs> no, no, women no. are just as good at basketball. <laughs> well, <laughs> now I'm going to get canceled. <laughs> technically, technically not. But I love watching women's <laughs> MMA. I like watching women's soccer. Women's basketball is a bit harder for me to watch. I don't know why. It's it's the interesting differences between sports. But I think like yeah, like. It, and like college sports, like why, why everybody's obsessed with like college basketball. Um, again, commiserations yeah. on the loss, uh, Rachel, but like <laughs> that's a lower standard the, than the NBA, but it's just as fun to watch. So I think there is no logical reason why like you can't really get into, if you're engaged in it and there's a huge crowd there and it's a close game, it doesn't really matter if it's high school or like, it's still fun, yeah. but I just think no other country in the world decides to just like, I don't think even like at Durham University, we had sports, but they weren't that that's in England for anyone who's listening mm. doesn't know. Um, we had like sports teams, but I don't think they were like university level. So like university, mm. like we might have had um, like, a, I guess a football team would be soccer, but we would, but there would be a lot of them like in the university. There wasn't like one Durham University team that competed against other universities. Um, and so that was kind of. Uh, unusual there because I think so I also cheerleaded in college um, Mm. and it's like a big part of like having the school identity and wearing you know Mm. the school gear um, to to have those sporting events and like you know every Friday night for football or actually when did we when were our games in college I don't even remember maybe it was Saturday Um, but to have those regular events that like a lot of people would show up for is yeah it, it builds it builds a community and it's uh, it is it is really cute and um that i like that was used to be like my central identity like cheerleading was my life like <laughs> there was a point in time where i was like maybe i should somehow find a way to pursue this professionally forever <laughs> and actually when i was a grad student at uci i briefly considered trying out for the laker girls and then i didn't do oh, it wow. chickened out <laughs> uh have you watched chia on netflix you know, like I watched an episode or two and then I stopped, but everyone tells me I should. Um, they're very talented. <laughs> Extremely but I talented. hear they have a lot of drama too. Like we didn't really oh, yeah. have drama. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They do for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another miscellaneous topic I feel like we need to discuss because <laughs> that's just what our pod. Um, so do either of you make your posters in PowerPoint. (laughs) This is apparently a really important thing that uh, has been consuming academic Twitter over the past week or so. Really? Um, I know you probably don't make posters anymore, but when you did. It's been, academic Twitter has been pretty slow and uninteresting. And I'm, 
I'm curious if it's because like America's into spring and summer. I I, I kind of mm. want to do some analysis on like sentiment, <laughs> sentiment of academic Twitter linked to US seasons. Cause it feels like during winter, there was just like, like outrage, like everybody's pissed off. Like constantly there's like multiple things a week. Something happens on Monday. We plan to talk about it on the podcast on Friday and then it's already answered by, by something. <laughs> we like, missed the window. <laughs> yeah. Like, is everybody just happier now? Cause it's not so cold. Yeah. People are having like in-person gatherings and mm. like mm. just having real lives. Uh, maybe. Or maybe we're to... like, like things are actually bad for Ukraine. Maybe we should stop bitching about like, I don't that's think that's not that's it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I didn't know people were. (laughs) There's been a bunch of of uh, you know like these silly controversies in the past month or so. Um, It's just in the. I honestly don't pay attention a lot to Twitter. Like I, you know, it makes me like people less, and so I just don't find it like (laughs) particularly (laughs) helpful. I didn't know we were debating posters. I did make them in PowerPoint, but I. I actually have only done like three posters in my life. And I think the last one was like mm, a while ago. Yeah. Like I've only done a couple too, um, but I also made them in PowerPoint. I'm, I, I don't even know. What, what is the what alternative? I, I don't know. I couldn't figure out. Everyone you know, was just I, I outraged. Use, <laughs> I use, I use illustrator. Uh, What's, what is illustrator? Adobe illustrator. Um, okay. I support your decision. Like you can do that. Do you get like special training for that? (laughs) Do people just know? No, no. So I actually, I did a bit of graphic design um, Ah, before I was in grad school. So I I just knew how to use it, but no, you, but there are really good, like, obviously like YouTube tutorials that you can learn, but I think like, PowerPoint's fine. Whatever, whatever. (laughs) Like I still use word and do my references manually. So people think I'm, yeah, I think that's. I outrageous. do my references manually too. Hey. <laughs> no, you should both start using Zotero. I know everyone tells me. I that, tried but... one. I tried once. It just seemed like a lot of work to to set it up and get started. Also, I feel like doing the references that. isn't like that difficult because I just like do them while I go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, like if you although get into probably it, like, I get more problems I, I with my. I once had a paper where I was submitting to like a system where it was numbered references and that's mm. horrible if you're doing it manually. Absolutely horrible. Cause anytime mm. you change one. Oh yeah. That's now yeah. every reference needs a new. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awful. I just don't submit. <laughs> what to journal journals. is that? I won't submit. I think there. it might've been like <laughs> nature, nature or science. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I got desk rejected of course, but after all that damn liberal bias. Ah. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. So let's wrap it up. Stay on the call. There's cool. other things we want to talk about. Uh, well, yeah. Off um, the record. Yes. Thank you yeah. so much for joining us. Uh, thank you we, for we having really me. really appreciate it. And yeah. you should maybe apply at uh, University of Austin or something. Did you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> University of Austin. I don't actually know like if that's a real situation like i know yeah, they're does. like saying it's gonna be a thing but then also i like looked at their website and it seems like nothing's happening well i i think they only have like one or two departments and i don't know if they're doing like masters or i don't think they're doing phds and i don't know it's like it doesn't seem like it's, yeah it take a while to like get off the ground and it's they're not like yeah. just gonna have a full university you know in the next yeah year. I mean, it's hard because I just feel like 
the main draw, at least this was my impression, like the main draw of academia, I think is just like the freedom, like the freedom to kind of study what you want to study and do what you want to do and kind of spend your time how you want to outside of, you know, you have to do a little bit of teaching and stuff. But now I just feel like people are so concerned about their peers and their the other people in their university and like getting punished for things like everyone's really on edge like I've had so many professors in these past couple of years approach me about how they they hate their job and if they could think of another way to make a living they would leave but like they're trained in this one particular thing um and unless you're going to transition into being like a really successful like popular book writer there aren't like a lot of options for people um so I mean that's kind of how I feel too like I it's just not as desirable as it used to be um well, I'll, I'll and edit, I, I have, I'll edit I have this some... depressing, depressing <laughs> part out. What a, way, what a way to close. No, I think it's it's actually like it's like letting people know what the atmosphere is like. Uh, and then maybe people be like, well, you guys, let's like chill out. <laughs> let's let's stop trying yeah. to like get each other fired. Let's no, stop tattling on each other. You're just encouraging them. They're going to be like, yes, no. we almost got them out. We just got to keep me, pushing a yeah. little bit more. <laughs> then let me tell you this fun fact from a uh, a study that I just ran. So I asked people how much admiration or contempt they have toward peers who start petitions to retract papers for different reasons. And people were like pretty, they admire people who try to get papers retracted for data fraud. They're pretty like mixed for like a research error. But if that's for like moral reasons, the modal response on a zero to 100 scale, where zero is maximum contempt and 100 is maximum admiration, the modal response is zero. Wow. <laughs> People what's, hate. What's the mean response? <laughs> the mean is like maybe 20 something. Okay. Well, so, so people really hate the mm. people who are creating the environment that's making everyone else fear for their jobs and i ask a lot of questions about that too and everyone they're scared of their colleagues they're scared of their students they're scared of social media and Mm. it's like Mm. you know like everyone wants everyone else to just chill out i think or at least most people want everyone to chill out (laughs) yeah that's a good note to end on yeah absolutely (laughs) chill out chill the fuck out just chill out man it's not a big deal All right, the music's going to be fading in at this point. All right, have a great weekend. (laughs) All right, bye.